Abolition. 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 I spent nine years in Draper Correctional Center, one of the most violent prisons that the Alabama Department of Corrections has ever laid the foundation of. While I was incarcerated, I saw men beaten to death. I saw men beaten beyond recognition by sadistic corrections officers employed by corrupt wardens. I've seen families destroyed by the very institution that has elected not to use this money to invest in disenfranchised communities, but they would rather build prisons and build a pipeline from those disenfranchised communities to those prisons. They chose, they chose to build jails over creating jobs. They, cho they chose to build prisons rather than job placement centers. They chose to build a system designed to relegate black and poor white disenfranchised communities to a system. I'm not going to say a broken system because it's working exactly how they wanted it to work. To relegate disenfranchised communities into a system of modern day slavery. It's not the light we need but fire, fire. Not the gentle shower but thunder, thunder. We need the storm. We need the trouble. We need the whirlwind. The earth to rumble. Without a struggle there can be no
You just heard an excerpt of the Alabama rally held yesterday at the Alabama State House organized by TOPS, the Ordinary People's Society, which is comprised of formerly incarcerated people. There was part two of the backwards march, Justice for the Donaldson Four, organized by Kenny Sharpton Glasgow, who was a member of the state operations team in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia for the Abolished Slavery National Network. This was followed up with Frederick's song, Freedom, by reggae band Say Real. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. Peace and blessings be upon you. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Hey, what's happening, Yusuf? I'm here, as always, at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina, streaming live. Awesome, awesome. And I can't wait to get down there to uh, tap the mic with you from there. So last week, uh, Max and I shared highlights from the Abolished Slavery National Network's first quarterly meeting of the year, which was attended by dignitaries and representatives nationwide with abolitionist speeches by Oregon State Senator Jeff Merkley, California Assembly Member Sidney Kamlager, and Her Majesty Queen Mother DeWoltu of Benin, representing the United Nations. We covered parts of the solution instead of just dealing with the symptoms. Yesterday marked the 126th anniversary of Frederick Douglass's passing at his Washington, D.C. home. Tonight, Max and I are honored to be joined by the great-great-great-grandson of Frederick Douglass, Kenneth Morris Jr., for a discussion on the modern slavery abolitionist movement. We'll also hear from Jamelia Land of California's ACA 3 bill to abolish slavery and multi-award winning spoken word artist Cola Rum. These are generations of abolitionists. And of course, we've got dope music, spoken word, and the voices of the ancestors reclaimed without bridging the gap segment. So let's get started. Max, tell us what you think about the opening clip. Well, man, uh, I listened to the live broadcast as they were doing the rally there. And I was just, you know, it's painful, first of all, that we're still having the same fight. But I was also very proud to see the abolitionists out there talking about this system as it should be spoken of as a crime against humanity. And it was a beautiful thing to see. That whole uh, event is available on our page at Abolition Today. And, of course, the music just tied in really nice, uh, that Frederick's song, Freedom. And, with you know, today we're dedicating everything. Uh, it's kind of two ways we're doing it. We're playing the music is going to be about Frederick Douglass, and the discussion is going to be about our guests tonight. So that's how we're going to roll with it. And we got some real gems for you, too. Yusuf? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, getting back to the, uh, the I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the group that quick. Oh, uh, you're talking about? Uh, the Ordinary or... People Society. Oh, the, no, or... the Ordinary, ordinary People, People Society. Yes. They have uh, the Backwards March Justice for the Donaldson Four, and they're calling on all formerly incarcerated people, family, and friends to come out to the 56th annual commemoration of Bloody Sunday. Uh, this is going to be February 28th at 2 p.m., at the Edwin Pettus Bridge on the Montgomery side. So that's next Sunday at 2 p.m. For those who are or may have forgotten history on that date, uh, this is when the SNCC and 
uh, Reverend Dr. King and a host of others were marching on to, from Montgomery to Selma to register to vote, and they were brutally attacked by police, firefighters, their dogs, and just <clears throat> average uh, normal people. So I just wanted to speak on that, that mm-hmm. that's the commemoration of Bloody Sunday. Mm. Max? Oh, I was just thinking, man, if I had the ability to get there, I would definitely go there as well and join in. Because as our listeners know, one of the people who was brutalized by the Alabama Department of Corrections personnel was one of the co-hosts of a program we have here at Abolition Today called Live from the Plantation. And uh, I remember his daughter during the speech said that she asked her father, who was still in the hospital, you know, he had to be airlifted out. He was so badly beaten. She asked her father, what can they do on the outside for him? And he told her, this is bigger than me. Uh, you know, and that's the story she brought back to us. And people spoke as abolitionists more often than not. I would, like I said, I was very proud of, you know, but we have to have this struggle in order for there to be progress. Uh, with that yeah. being said, man, I do want to make a couple of, uh, I, I, I want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, of course, we want to recognize that today is the day that Malcolm X was assassinated. And I saw some news yesterday where there was a book being released that had a letter from the detective, black detective that was there, black cops, that was involved in the shooting. Um, I'll put that out on Abolition today as well. Apparently, it was one of those deathbed confessions. And also, it's Nina Nina Simone's birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday. Happy birthday to the queen. Nina Simone. And and that's all I got to add. The next thing I want to do is bring in our guests. What about you, Yusuf? Hey, without further ado, you know. Uh, uh, no doubt. I'll start the drum roll while you do the introduction. <laughs> uh, all right, no doubt. Uh, well, Kenneth B. Morris Jr. is descended from two of the most names in American history. He is the triple X grandson of Frederick Douglass and the double X grandson of Booker T. Washington. He's also mm. the co-founder of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, FDFI. The FDFI exists to honor and preserve the legacy of Frederick Douglass and to create awareness about modern-day slavery in an effort to expedite its demise. And lastly, Kenneth is an alumni of the GreatBlackSpeakers.com. Welcome to Abolition Today, Brother Kenneth B. Morris Jr. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you, Max, and you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming. Um, Yesterday was the anniversary of his passing. Uh, Did you do anything specifically to commemorate that yesterday? You know, we're always working on a number of initiatives that correspond with dates that were significant in the life of my great ancestor, Frederick Douglass, and my uh, cousin, Terrence, Terrence Bailey, who is a descendant of Frederick Douglass's brother, Terry Bailey. Now, we know... Uh, from our history that Frederick Douglass was not born with the name Frederick Douglass. He was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey Mm -hmm. on the eastern Mm -hmm. shore of Maryland. And my cousin Terrence, who's very active um, on the eastern shore, worked with the um, uh, state government in Maryland, and they were able to um, make yesterday Civil Rights Day in in Maryland to honor Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, um, and other uh, great Marylanders like Thurgood Marshall. So that was our big announcement. Mm. Um, this is going to be an annual uh, commemoration. So we're very proud of that great, activity. Great. And I definitely want to give a shout out to my cousin. 
Yes, we, uh, I saw the article yesterday and it shared it around, and that is pretty awesome uh, to see the recognition come into play now. Uh, you know, this sometimes you, I'm not always in agreement in with the way the recognition comes out. Like, what's going on with the $20 bill right now is not one of the things uh, either Yusuf or myself or many other slavery abolitionists are very happy with, you know. Uh, when we imagine her face on that bill, we imagine the worst things that happen with money, especially when it comes to slavery right. and human trafficking. And to right. think of her image on that as occurring is uh, un- unnerving. What do you think, uh, Kenneth? You know, I um, you know, it's a conversation that I have often uh, when people talk about commemorations, and that you know they give us a commemoration, they give us a day, but you know they don't work on um, affecting systemic change. And I think that, you know, the commemoration is important because it uh, definitely raises awareness about our history, Um, you know, this history that has not been told from our perspective. And um, so I think it's uh, commemorations are a piece of the the work that needs to be done. Um, We we work hard to uh, make sure that, that my ancestors, both Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington, and also um, Anna Murray Douglas, who was Frederick Douglass's wife of 44 years, and my my great 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 grandmother, that we're lifting up the life and legacy and helping people to understand uh, the contributions and the sacrifice and the struggle uh, that was made, so that we could see some progress, but recognizing there's still uh, such a long long way to go. I can't say that I disagree. I, I do agree with you on that aspect of it, but. I, I don't know if I was speaking from that area. I, I'm very jealous of our ancestors. You know what I mean? Like we had a song we was considering <laughs> to play on this program, and it's you know epic rap battles in history: Frederick Douglass versus Thomas Jefferson. You know, and we think Frederick right. won on it, but I felt a little disrespected by some of the things that they were saying about it. So I, I often go, "What would that person think?" That particular person, like, what would Harriet think of her being on a $20 bill, you know what I mean, as a slavery abolitionist, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and, and that's the first thing that comes to my mind to help me shape the, my ideas now, because I'm dealing with the same thing they were dealing with. It, if she asked a simple question like, are they still buying and selling my people with that, I would have to say yes. Yeah, well, I, you know, I right. understand exactly, in fact, that our organization – um, every day that I wake up, I ask, what would Frederick Douglass do? What would he say um, if he were here today? Same, same thing with Booker T. Washington. And every time that we uh, think about a new project or new initiative, that's the first question that we ask ourselves. And, of course, it's very difficult. I don't think anybody can say um, you know, what he would truly say if he were here today. But because his blood flows through my veins, I, I do take some liberty, and um, <laughs> yep. you know, I will – <laughs> talk a little bit about it, but you know, I get where you're coming from as far as you know the money and and Harriet Tubman. Um, you know, I, we try and focus on work um, based on really Frederick Douglass's um, famous quote: "It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men." So if we're going mm-hmm. to attack any of these issues, short term and long term, we've got to um, make sure that we're building strong children, and we spend most of our time with our initiatives in. K through 12 schools doing just that, uh, building strong children through service learning and civic engagement curricula um, in a formula called history, human rights, and the power of one. You know, the history is, is talking about the ancestors and talking about the freedom fighters that came before us and, you know, what they were able to accomplish with really 
um, up against seemingly insurmountable odds. And then we, we transition into talking about human rights issues and contemporary forms of slavery. And then the power of one is service in the community. It's young people going out and being modern-day abolitionists in the mold of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and many, many others. Yeah, that's just wonderful. This got me cheesing over here just hearing you say those things. <laughs> you know, right. uh, by, because, by the way, by the way, yes. I got to tell you that open that opening was powerful, and I had never heard that Frederick song before. And of course, I caught right up front. It's not light that we need, but fire. It's yes. it is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful. Mm-hmm. Thank you, brother. We, you know, we yes. put a lot of thought into those intros. We're pretty much well known for our, our opening tracks, <laughs> and we've had some powerful ones. But that that is powerful. You, you sure are right. And Say Real did wonderful with it. The video is very nice too, which is uh, available on our page at Abolition Today. Uh, and if Jamelia is out there anywhere, and you're just listening in, when you're ready to call in, remember to press one on your keypad so that I, I'll know it's you. I have a few questions that I want to ask you, but the first one that's burning up in me, right, is you're a slavery abolitionist. That's awesome in itself, right? All of us Mm -hmm. here are. Our audience are well-versed on slavery abolition. They know all about the 13th Amendment and all that. We don't even have to explain things to them no more, and it's a wonderful feeling. They understand the circumstances. And when you're here, it's like Mm -hmm. being home. You don't have to explain and break everything down. But I know that now you're very aware of this 13th Amendment convict leasing switcheroo that happened in 1865, which allowed them to continue to use us for not only labor, but now in warehousing bodies. How did you feel when you first became aware of that deception through the 13th Amendment? Well, let me let me first tell you how I first became aware of it or really conscious of it, because, you know, I was I was born with this lineage lineage and this heritage, and there was really never a time when somebody said to me, you know, sit down, we've got something really important to tell you. I've just always known. I spent all of my summers at Frederick Douglass's summer beach house <laughs> in, in, in Maryland, which was built by my mm. great-great-grandfather, Charles, who was the youngest son of Frederick and Anna Murray Douglass. And Charles built this home, and he asked his father – knowing that he was going to retire in it, are there any special features that you want? And Frederick said, yes, I wanted to point in a certain direction, and I want a tower at the top, because what he wanted to do at the end of his life was he wanted to sit in that tower and look back across that water, back across the Chesapeake Bay, because on the other side you could see land, and that land is the eastern shore of Maryland where he had been born into slavery and where he had toiled away in chains. And here was this man who became the first African-American nominated for vice president of the United States, first African-American U.S. Marshal, first African-American ambassador and council general to Haiti, uh, first African-American record of deeds in the District of Columbia, first African-American to have a statue dedicated in his honor. And that list goes on and on and on. And people would see this white-haired statesman near the end of his life, and they would say, Frederick, I need to know where did you go to school? Where did you get your education? (laughs) And he would respond on occasion by saying, my degree is written on my back. And so I spent all of my summers in that house. And unfortunately, he passed away a couple of months before it was completed, and he never got a chance uh, to live in it. But, you know, just to be honest with you, I spent most of my life really running away from this legacy for many reasons. I had seen what the pressure had done, you know, to those that came before me. 
Um, I'd seen how um, my ancestors and my my grandfather in particular, who was the namesake to Frederick Douglass, his name was Frederick Douglass III, how he always walked around with this weight of expectation and people expected him to be an iconic leader like his uh, his great-grandfather, and he winds up taking his own life when my grandmother was pregnant with my mother. So there's been you know, tragedy in the family because of that legacy. And, you know, when I came along with this, the first male to carry the dual lineage of Douglas and Washington, um, you know, my, my family wasn't going to force anything on me. So I was really uh, disengaged from this lineage for most of my life. You know, I was happy to be a, a husband and a father and a businessman. And don't talk to me about this Douglas and Washington stuff, but all of that changed in 2005 when I read a National Geographic magazine cover story and the headline was 21st Century Slaves. Um, and it was about, that particular article was about human trafficking as a form of modern day slavery. So child labor trafficking, child sex trafficking existing all over the world, including here in the United States. And that article really, um, really moved me because I had thought like most people um, that slavery had ended with the work of Frederick Douglass and the abolitionists and not really being tuned in to that exception clause in the 13th Amendment. Um, and at that time, you know, my daughters were 12 and 9 years old, and I, I remember reading another article about a 12-year-old girl who was forced to be a sex slave in the brothels of Southeast Asia and service countless men almost every single night. And down the hallway, my girls were getting ready for bed, and my older daughter was 12 years old, so she was the same age as this girl that I was reading about. And I had this moment when I walked in to uh, say goodnight to them. I, I couldn't even look them in the eyes, and it was this feeling that I couldn't look them in the eyes and, and, and walk away and not do something about this. And it was almost immediately that I understood that I had this form that my ancestors had built through struggle and through sacrifice, and perhaps we could – leverage the historical significance of my ancestry to do something about this issue. And so two years later, uh, my mom and I, my mom is Nettie Washington Douglas, is the person that, that united the bloodlines of the families through her, the union of her parents, and then a business partner, Robert Benz. We started Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, and we immediately turned to schools to start, schools to start talking about you know the issue of uh, slavery in this country, and then talking about contemporary forms of slavery. And as I said, eventually we evolved into uh, putting together curricula that had service learning, civic engagement components. So to get back to your initial question, uh, Max, you know, I was well into my adult years before I really started to focus in on this. And I'll say, you know, I was a product of uh, the public school system in California and the product of a whitewashed, sanitized version of history that place people of Native American descent and people of African descent in inferior positions by design to prop up white supremacy. Um, and so I was, I was late to the game. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something that I came out of the womb, you know, as with, with Frederick Douglass's fiery rhetoric. Um, it took me a while to, to come to this. Yeah, we all, well, I came kind of late. I've been involved since my mid twenties as a civil rights activist but I wasn't really aware of the 13th Amendment until I got in my 30s. Uh, I was aware with slavery. I just didn't know how to connect the dots until Angela mm-hmm. Davis came along. And Angela Davis right. broke down the 13th Amendment to me, which I had never even bothered to read. So I went and read it, and then I started researching, and then I reached out to Frederick Douglass. And he's been my mentor on that ever since. He's written speeches about it. 
uh, <clears throat> he uh, you know opposed William Lloyd Garrison when William Lloyd Garrison wanted to disband the American Anti-Slavery Society on the grounds that the 13th Amendment had been ratified by enough states. And he's like, yo, hold on for a minute there, Willie. <laughs> what will the black <laughs> man do without this, without us? You know right. what I mean? Like, we ain't done. Right. And, you know, and then he had to come to this idea, even after the 13th Amendment, what do I what do, I do from here? Because my people still need me. And he had to reinvent himself to a degree because it was a different fight then. Same people, same battle, just a different way of fighting. Uh, so, yeah, I've right. been, like, I, sitting at his knee for a long time. And I understand where you're coming from about this shadow, you know what I mean, and the weight it must hold. Um, but I'm just happy to know you're, you're alive, brother, that, you know, his lineage is still alive. <laughs> and I'm also happy, to, er, to know that you have taken uh, your life now and dedicated it to the people, you know, in the way that you have. And open up doors and opportunities. There is a case of miseducation with our people. One of them is in regards mm-hmm. to the types of slavery. Many people talk about forms of slavery, right? But they don't know about types. And it's it's amazing because throughout most of American history, slavery was done right in our faces. It was legal, <laughs> done right in our faces and openly, right? It wasn't illegal. It was legal. Uh, so now illegal slavery, like sex trade, children, uh, all the different ways throughout the world that we've been fighting since the beginning of time, they still go on. For fights like that, you need anti-slavery activists, no doubt. You also need soldiers and cops to enforce the laws, right? Uh, Because these Mm -hmm. people are are breaking the laws. They're criminals. If you're using human trafficking and slavery, there's laws against that both globally and nationally, and you're a criminal. But when it comes to the state doing it, that's legal slavery. (laughs) And that's a whole different arena now, you know? And that's what they've always done to us, the legal slavery. So we end up with the largest prison population in history, humankind. We have more black men in prisons than the top five populated African nations combined. And we're constantly incarcerating people for living conditions, ideas, inanimate objects like marijuana, you know, and right. putting them, throwing them away for life all through this clause. So, yeah, it's not something that we come to overnight. We ain't born with that. We had to find out, like we tend to do every 50 years, find out some new stuff. So, yeah, I, I didn't mean to go off well, on a tangent. I just wanted to share that information. So, passing the mic right no, back I, to you, I, brother. Yeah, I, I think you, you you make some excellent points. So, you know, we um, have gone through 400 years of oppression and uh, 400 plus years of oppression and enslavement. And after the last of those formerly enslaved people, the four, four million in 1865, you know, this the economic engine engine of slavery ran ran this country and built this country. And so you have to look for a new form to be able to re-enslave those people that had, um, you know, built built your country. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's. One of those things that – and you make a good point about slavery as far as uh, human trafficking is, is not legal anywhere in the world uh, versus 19th century forms of slavery, which were state-sanctioned. Mm-hmm. I mean imagine mm-hmm. living at a time when your federal government said it's legal to own you and illegal to teach you. You know, I think most people would run away from that, and thank goodness Frederick Douglass and many others didn't, or we would be a very different country today. And so right. when we um, do do our work at this organization, we are always guided by history. Uh, we always start with, with um, the point in history because 
um, you know, and, you, and we've heard people say it, you need to know where you come from in order to know where you're headed. But I also think that history, the more we know about our history, the better we can navigate the world in which we live. And, um, you know, there are solutions for our future as well. So we're talking about still slavery that is legal and state sanctioned and needs to be dismantled in the same way that the abolitionists in the 19th century looked at the legal institution of slavery and say, how do we dismantle this? And I'm sure a lot of people looking at them like, uh-huh. they're crazy. you know, it's too, it's too big of a system. You can't, you, you won't be able to do that. But, you know, they did in, in as far as the legal slavery then. Yes. They, they got away with it. Uh, they say they uh, ended convict leasing in 1921 or 1928, depending on how you t- who you talk to. But we've been reading documents on air here where they got contracts right now where they guarantee that they lease out convicts from prisons for work. And that's convict leasing. The firefighters are convict leasing. They're still using convict leasing. But they've also adopted mm-hmm. now this new form of slavery, which is warehousing bodies. So it's not so much reliant on the work. Just go ahead and put you in a cage, and you're worth. Uh, in the case of Khalif Browder, he was worth three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. That's what it costs to incarcerate a sixteen-year-old in Rikers Island. Three hundred and fifty-three thousand right. dollars a year. So all they had to do was put him in a cage and collect that money. And they do that all across America right now in Alabama. That's why they're having this uh, rallies because you know they have eighth and fourteenth amendment violations happening rampant there. The DOJ is investigated, determined it. There's suits going on and everything. And now we've got even some of our own hosts here on programs who are being brutalized inside the prisons. Um, So, you know, instead of changing the circumstances, instead of freeing anybody, men who should have long been freed, they got $3 billion more to build more prisons. It's like getting paid for Mm -hmm. it, you know, like it's it's an award for violating Mm -hmm. people's rights and treating them like human property. Yeah, and, and when you're talking about pri- private um, prisons and you know stockholders and and you, how, how do you mm-hmm. make more money? Well, you have to put more people right. in debt. Um, you know, so yeah, that's 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 no secret. But um, you know, I, I just I, I just go back to you know our work and and the education of of young people to understand you know how these systems work and how racism runs systemically through American life in every institution. You know, so um, we we focus on educating young people and inspiring them through um, the stories of their ancestors to want to affect change in the world around them. Now, that's a longer term solution, uh, you know, because, again, we're building strong children who are going to be our future leaders. But I think a lot of times people want to see um, they want to see change right now. You know, it's like we got to see change today. Um, and. We, we we definitely um, look at this as a, a longer-term solution, um, not that we don't agitate for change today, but I just really think that it's harder – that quote that I mentioned, it's harder to repair broken men and women and get people mm-hmm. to change their minds and their ideology. But if you can um, you know, build strong children understanding that the school-to-prison pipeline and, and everything that comes after that, um, I think that's how we're going to really be able to get ahead of this. I think you're right. Uh, for us here with Abolition Today, it's been more focus of education. As a matter of fact, that's how we met. Uh, we followed the idea that Frederick presented was that knowledge makes one unfit to be a slave. <clears throat> so we're making people unfit, unfit to be slaves, <laughs> you know, with knowledge. 
Um, so uh, that's how we met. I think Jamilia uh, told me that you were looking for content for abolitionists, uh, modern day abolitionists. And I've been collecting that for years, you know. So um, I still got that content whenever you're ready, man. As a matter of fact, I think we might even have Jamilia on the line. Hold on for a second here. Let me open up 2161. All right. 2161, is this Jamilia? That may be or? Scotty Reed. Oh, Scotty Reed. Okay, uh, Scotty. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Open. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, can we can hear you. Can you hear me? Welcome to Abolition yes. Today, right. Scotty. Uh, first of all, great show. Uh, great Abolition Today episode. I hope it's widely shared. Uh, it's not every day you get to speak to a descendant of a man of such stature or an ancestor of such stature as uh, Frederick Douglass. So good evening to you, Mr. Morris. Thank you very much, Scotty. I appreciate that. It's good to hear your voice. Yes, sir. Um, I'm like these guys, you know, um, I came to the, I read the 13th Amendment, and due to me having a pretty good reading comprehension, I knew that there was a contradiction uh, in that sentence when you have accept as punishment. Um, you know, and then I started linking up with people like Max and others that have been educating themselves on this issue of whether or not slavery was abolished. And, of course, many of the materials we were reading from um, were uh, from your ancestor. Um, but he's not only just been an inspiration to us, but I want to tell you how he inspired the young man who I met for the first time on the street. Um, on the 4th of July, um, we have been protesting all summer in Gaston County, North Carolina, to remove a Confederate statue in front of our county courthouse. And so, you know, other than just protesting and marching, I was thinking of creative ways to educate people around the issue of slavery, which certainly that Confederate monument is connected to that legacy. And so we um, decided to do a abolitionist reading, and I worked with um, a local lady who was in the drama community, you know, acting and stuff like that. And she got some uh, uh, people in her circle to volunteer to come to the courthouse where we held uh, an abolitionist reading, reading old speeches from, you know, uh, abolitionists uh, from the past. And so this young man, he didn't even know about it. He just lived in the area. This young black man who was a local rapper, I didn't even know him at the time, but he's a rapper, uh, an entertainer. And he just sat there and he listened to everybody. Then he said, hey, I want to speak on this. And I was like, well, you can speak, but you got to read a speech. And I pulled up, what what <laughs> is the 4th of July to the new mm-hmm. And had this right. man, he was so excited. It moved him so much. It was his first time at reading a reading speech. And then from then on, um, he started, you know, organizing to be of service to the community, whether that was helping the homeless and, and whatnot, um, you know, in addition to speaking out against the Confederate monument and other issues in the community. So all these years later, you know, um, your great-great-grandfather is, is still inspiring people uh, to, to, you know, try to produce justice world, you know, so I just, I just wanted to tell you, I know you probably hear many stories like that, um, but, you know, that was like a really beautiful experience to see that young black man inspired that way, you know, reading that speech on the 4th of July in the shadow of a Confederate monument. 
Yeah, I, I never get tired of hearing hearing those types uh, types of stories, and I, I thank you for sharing that with me. That that's powerful. Um, you know that 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 is really powerful. You know, I've had my whole life um, people come up to me of all ages and uh, and all races, quite frankly, that they talk about the first time that they encountered Frederick Douglass's first autobiography, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, and how it changed their lives. I'm in the same way that this young man was changed by reading the, his Fourth of July oration in the shadow of a Confederate monument. Um, so I know that the power of words and example that my ancestor, uh, 201 years after, actually 200, I think we're 202 years now after his birth, he's still impacting people um, everywhere. Um, in Ireland as well, we just had uh, February mm-hmm. 8th through the 14th. Um, you know, at Douglas Week in Ireland, and to talk about his time uh, there, the four months that he had spent, uh, because when that narrative was first published, it became a bestseller. It, it made him a household name, and the notoriety threatened his freedom, um, and he would have to flee to Europe for a couple of years. So all over the world, you know, I was in November 2019. I was in Newcastle-upon-Tyne in England, which is significant in my ancestor's life because that's where his abolitionist friends did a fundraiser and purchased his freedom from his enslaver for $711, and he was able to come back uh, to the U.S., a free man, and then settle in Rochester, New York, and begin to publish his newspaper, The North Star. But we did a project in 2018, which was Frederick Douglass's bicentennial year, and we republished that narrative. And um, we have an introduction by Brian Stevenson, and I'm sure you're probably familiar with his work, mm-hmm. with the Equal Justice Initiative. And um, we have the voices of young people talking about what the narrative means to them. Um, I wrote the foreword, and then Douglas's narrative appeared exactly as it did in 1845. And we're working on giving away one million copies of that book to young people everywhere um, in a project called One Million Abolitionists. And we're at 100,000 copies now. We're a long way from a million, but we're going to keep working until we get there so that uh, young people in the same way this young man was transformed by reading the 4th of July speech. Uh, we want people to read Frederick Douglass's words everywhere and, and have you know access to, to um, his ideas on freedom, justice, liberty, and equality. You know, you beat me to the punch on that one. That was one of my questions. But I have a wish to go with that, and I know it's not going to happen. But wishes are wishes, right? You can always make them. And I <laughs> wish... <laughs> I wish that in addition to the million copies of his narrative, that also a copy of his speech in 1888, where he stood in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., on the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation and denounced it as a stupendous fraud and broke it down in every way imaginable, not only how it was happening all across America, but what would be the future effects of it if it was not stopped there and then. Uh, so that people could see, you know, okay, this is what happened up until this point, but look at how he, he what, what his final thoughts on this was in regards to the work mm-hmm. of his life efforts and where we were at to realize that the fight was not over. And he was one of the few people who realized that, that slavery right. had not actually been abolished, <laughs> you know? He called it yeah. half free and half slave, right? Right, yeah. Well, so any com- comments on that? Sometimes, yeah, I was gonna say wishes do some uh, do come true. Sometimes, you know, there are other ways to be able to attach that speech, you know, to the electronic copies that we distribute 
we're actually in the process of um, publishing a, another edition right now. So um, I don't know how many pages that would add to the book that, that we already have, but there are ways to, to disseminate that, and that's that's a great idea. Oh, that man, you know, that'd be the second <laughs> time you had me over here feeling so proud. You know what I mean? Uh, the first time was when we were privately talking. He's like, Max, you know, my ancestors would be proud of what you guys are doing. And, and, you know, this is a lifetime of work for me. And my wife's ancestor is also an abolitionist. So like you, we're carrying on the lineage. Uh, and this is the second time to think that that could possibly happen. Because this speech is so underknown. People, they had no idea. I, I rarely run across anyone, even those who studied Frederick Douglass, everything he said, never mention it. They, it's like they don't know. Right. I, I don't understand the reason for that because it changes your perspective now when you see that. And he said, you know, I've been walking through these North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia for 30 years nearly. And here's what I've seen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So Can I, I, um, I wanted to touch touch Go on um, something that you had mentioned um, a, a moment ago about uh, Frederick Douglass hearing his enslavers say, you know, education will unfit him to be a slave. I, um, you know, I just wanted to share that story because I think it's it's really important and it's at the foundation of the work that we do at our organization. I'm sure it's at the foundation of the work that you all are doing as well. I don't want to assume that people just know where that comes from. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass was born to an enslaved woman on the eastern shore of Maryland. And he wrote in that narrative that when he was around eight years old, he had what he called divine providence in his favor happen, and that was he was chosen from among all of the children on the plantation to go to Baltimore to be the house servant for his master's uh, family. Now, the importance of this move was he was leaving an environment where he wasn't around people where he could learn to read and write, and he was going to be in the big city now. He would be around free black children, and he would be around poor white children. But what happened most importantly when he got there, his slave mistress had never had a slave before and didn't know that it was illegal to teach him to read and write. So she began to teach young Frederick his ABCs, and that was all he needed was that little spark of light into his mental darkness, into his mental bondage. And so those lessons continued for a little while until his enslaver found out about him. And when he found out, he got angry. Mm-hmm. And he looked at his wife and he looked at Frederick and he said, you cannot teach a slave how to read and write because if you do, it will unfit him to be a slave. And it shows mm. you how brilliant this young boy was because he looked at his master and he thought, hmm, if you don't want me to have this, I'm going to do everything in my power to gain it. And he understood right then and there that education was going to be his pathway to freedom. Education equals liberation. Education equals emancipation. And he would begin to teach himself to read and write. And it's really important for people to understand that while his slave mistress gave him those initial lessons, he was a self-taught scholar, never spent one day of his life in a classroom, and he self-liberated himself. He taught himself to read. It wasn't the slave mistress that taught him to read, but what his, his master predicted happened. He became unfit and unruly, and he starts to think critically about his condition of enslavement and oppression, and he starts asking questions like, why am I a slave, and why do you own me, and how come you know your birthday and I don't know my birthday? And as he's praying to God for deliverance from his chains and his bondage, he's asking God, he said, you know, I don't understand how my master puts on a suit every Sunday and goes to church, and then the Word and Bible and cherry-picked scripture finds justification to brutalize, dehumanize, rape, pillage, and plunder his property. 
he's starting to make this distinction between what he would later describe as the slaveholding Christianity of the land, using the Christian religion to justify uh, mistreating people, taking away their humanity, taking away their freedom, versus what he would call the pure, peaceable, um, impartial Christianity of Christ. And so when we share that story with young people, uh, we want them to start asking you know, the same questions, and they do. Um, you know, I remember a young man saying to me one time, he said, okay, so I'm, I'm asking why, because I'm, I'm born into a certain zip code, I have less opportunity and access to uh, good education and healthcare and economic opportunity versus somebody else born in another zip code through no fault of, of their own. And so, you know, getting our young people to think critically, you know, about their condition. Also, I remember telling that story. I was at a barbershop in Albany, New York, and I was talking to a group of uh, teenage um, African-American boys. And this young man said to me, he said, you know, that story that you just told about Frederick Dar uh, Douglass and his mental darkness, he said, if I could just describe to you what my mind feels like. He said, I feel like my, in my, inside of my head is a pitch black hallway with no windows, no doors, and no way out. I don't know which direction to point in, but what you just shared about Frederick Douglass, I now see some light being shown into my mental darkness, and I have some hope, and I have some direction that there, there's a way out of it. So, you know, these stories uh, from history and our ancestors and the power that carries, you know, the, the spirit of Frederick Douglass is in all of us, and I certainly hear it in you, Max. <laughs> oh, like I told you, brother, I feel like he's my mentor. You know, I'm still learning from yeah. him right now, uh, every day. We sat here for 19 weeks listening to the narrative uh, is that you you want the kids to hear, to read, uh, read by Ossie Davis, part piece by piece, yeah. and we played it with some music and we really absorbed it and. It got so powerful that at points we were going, you know, we don't need to schedule what we're going to do for next week's show. We don't need to know. We just ask Frederick because he's been so on point with mm -hmm. everything that's happening. Whatever he's talking about at this point is what we're going to schedule for next week's show. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we that. was watching yeah, history yeah. repeat. That's what we were doing, right. watching history repeat. And, uh, you know, it was like sitting at the grid's knees, just absorbing this information. He was a hell of a strategist. But so are you. <laughs> you know, I see what you're doing, man. You know, I, I wish I had a meme I could give you, right? I see what you're doing there. <laughs> you are <laughs> aiming no, for that next that. generation. You're aiming for that next generation, bringing them into knowledge and understanding and using education to make the difference because revolution begins in your mind. It begins when you change your mind. And where's the best place to affect the future, to change your mind with our youth? Tell them the truth, <laughs> you know, tell yeah. them the truth. Yeah. That's it. You know, and, and also they, they can connect with Frederick Douglass um, in a myriad of ways. You know, you're talking about memes. And so that makes me think about technology and how Frederick Douglass understood technology. You know, at the age of 22, only two years removed from slavery, he understood that this new technology that he would come of age with, photography, he could use to help make his arguments for liberation and equality in the same way that he would use his oratory and, and his writings. And he was very strategic in the way that he went about being photographed. Now, he's trying to counteract in the public consciousness this idea that people of African descent were not full human beings. They were not worthy of freedom. They were not worthy of citizenship. And perhaps they're better off enslaved because they, they're getting some level of care, you know, making a group of people and other to justify um, taking away their humanity and their freedom. And so, 
he said that when you look at a photograph of me, you are never going to deny that I'm a man worthy of freedom and worthy of citizenship. And when you look at in my eyes, you're going to see my humanity. And then, you know, people that were pro-slavery in the federal government would say things like, well, listen to the happy songs that they sing on the plantation. And he also said, Frederick said, when you look at a photograph of me, you were never going to see in my face a happy, amiable, fugitive slave. And so he would go on to become the most photographed American of the 19th century, photographed more than uh, Abraham Lincoln, more than Ulysses S. Grant, more than General Custer and his only contemporaries in the world um, that had been photographed more than he was, was the British royal family. So he understood that technology. He, 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 under, he, he knew how to use it um, to his advantage. And if he were here today, he'd probably have you know, 100 million Twitter followers because he'd know how to use that he's, too for Instagram he, followers. He, cre- he created <laughs> meme mugging. He created the gas face. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> look at some of these pictures. He's like, <laughs> right? I'm in a selfie. <laughs> it's beautiful, man. Hey, hey listen, I know you only, we only got about 10 minutes left together, and I've been hogging all of this. I haven't given a chance at all for Yusuf to ask anything. Uh, Yusuf, did you want to have any questions you want to ask me before we give him an opportunity to uh, share with uh, us some of his thoughts? And I you know, it was such a, okay. you know, it was okay. such a great conversation. That's why I just never even chimed in. Uh, <laughs> and he covered a lot of things that I was going to ask anyway. But one of the things I just wanted to ask was, uh, well, I'll say my favorite work by him actually was a work of fiction, and it's The Heroic Slave. But mm-hmm. uh, although it was a work of fiction, we know how true it is and how real that was about right. the enslaved revolts that went on during that time. So my question to you is, do you have a favorite? Which which of your great-great-great-grandfather's uh, uh, works is your favorite? I, I would say uh, my favorite, and, and that changes over time, but right now is his second autobiography, My Bondage and My Freedom, which was published mm-hmm. in 1855. And what I like about that was he had experienced – he had been free longer. When he wrote the narrative in 1845, he was 27 years old, and he was only seven years removed from, from slavery and had never been anywhere except you know, he had traveled around the country as a paid lecturer on the anti-slavery lecture circuit. But um, by 1855, he had traveled to Europe, and he, he knew what freedom meant, and in that book, and really – you know, he, he, he spends a lot of time talking about what freedom means and what freedom would mean, you know, to his people, his brethren that were still uh, toiling away in chains. Um, you know, we're still 10 years – he's still 10 years away from, um, you know, the end of slavery after the Civil War. So that, that's my, my favorite work, but, but <laughs> you thought you, – you, you're diving deep if you know about the heroic slave. <laughs> Listen, oh, you know, I, you know, I, I quote Malcolm X all the time when he says nobody can give you freedom, nobody can give you equality, justice, or anything. If you're a man, you take it, and so that's why right. I think that that the heroic slave captures the essence of that. You know, or I have I it, have that t- I have that Malcolm X T-shirt on right now with that quote on it that I got. Wow! Like, you know, wow! Look at that small world, right? Small wow! World, right? Yeah. Man. And I'm and a so my spoken word on it. Go ahead. Listen to that. See that? And I would just say my my final question, just to get into uh, maybe if there's like something of uh, family lore that you'd like to share about uh, 
your your ancestor that's just not like related to the work like did he have any hobbies or you know what when he wasn't doing the work, which I'm sure was all the time, you know, what 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 did he like to do? Were there any like family stories like that? Oh yeah, well, pl- plenty of stories. Um, he was a musician. Um, he was a self-taught violinist. He taught my mm. great grandfather Joseph how to play the violin. And if you are familiar with Douglas photographs, there are a series of pictures with his grandson Joseph. Joseph is holding the violin. Um, Joseph is my great grandfather and. And Joseph would continue his music education at the Boston Conservatory and then become a concert violinist uh, playing all over the world. And he was the first black classical recording artist for the Victor Talking Machine Company. So Frederick was a great teacher as well. And uh, mm-hmm. he, loved baseball. He, he loved baseball. Baseball. So at his home in, um, in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C., which is now the Frederick Douglass National Historic Site, run by the National Park Service. It's where he spent the last 17 years of his life, and he would walk mm-hmm. around the neighborhood and interact with the kids and play baseball. And there was a story near the end of his life where this young man came up, or this young boy came up to him and said, you know, Mr. Douglas, I'm interested in fighting against injustice. I, I want to fight for freedom and equality. Are there any uh, words or is there any advice that you can give to me? And without, without hesitation, the great abolitionist just said, Agitate, 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 agitate. agitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what he did. You know, he spoke truth to power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Can I, Thank can, you for can that. I just say one? Can I say yeah, one ahead, thing? Cause I know we're, our time, sure. our, our time is coming close to the end. But I, I mentioned my great 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 grandmother um, when we started our conversation. But I wanted to really lift her up because there would be no Frederick Douglass without Anna Murray Douglass in his life. Right. They met right. while he was enslaved in Baltimore as a teenage boy. She was the first in her family to be born free. And as they are starting to think about a life together, she's the first person to plant the seed of thought in his mind. That Frederick, you're not meant to be a slave for life. And as they're starting to think about having a family together, she said, I don't want our children's father to be a slave. Had she not sold her personal belongings to help finance his escape, had she not sewn the sailor's disguise that he would wear, who knows if he would have had the courage or the wherewithal to uh, run away and had we not had the contributions of the great abolitionists, we would be a very different country today. They were married for 44 years. They had five children together, 21 grandchildren. She was a conductor on the under, Underground Railroad out of their house in Rochester, New York, helping to ferry hundreds of freedom seekers to their freedom in Canada. And so she's a very, very important part of the story. She's been pushed aside in history, mostly by white male historians that don't understand how this you know, dark-skinned woman who never learned to read and write could be with somebody like the great Frederick Douglass when we know that she was so much more. Uh, she took care of the finances. Uh, she took care of the home, when he was on, which allowed him to be on the road. And um, you know, she was a, a strong woman in his life. And um, I will say that in the bicentennial year of 2018, there's a school that sits on their, their old home site in Rochester. There, we remember our Frederick Douglass history. That house was burned down by arson, which precipitated his move to Washington, D.C. But that school that sits on that old home site, we were able to get renamed the Anna Murray Douglas Academy. So she's starting to get her recognition and due. And then the other thing is, you probably saw in the news that the airport in Rochester, New York, was right. renamed for Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass. Right. So we're we're out there trying to you know lift up the legacy, but also 
make um, all of this relevant today because if you read his words, his speeches, his thousands of essays, his three autobiographies, his 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 uh, book, his um, heroic slave fiction, you know these right. all of his words are as relevant to today and our challenge challenges that we're facing um, as they were all those years ago. Thank you, brother. Um, I I, I want to make an official offer to you. But first, I want to say thank you on behalf of both myself, Yusuf, and all our listeners yes. and sponsors for being here today and sharing your time and your uh, memories and your wisdom with us. And thank you for the efforts that you're doing as an abolitionist in the 21st century. Uh, we hope that you will join us again here on Abolitionist Abolition Today in the future. Um, I want you to personally consider me a friend, brother. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm tight with Jamelia. I want to be tight with you, too. Because the yeah, work that we got to do goes beyond this. We, we, we have each other's numbers, so um, definitely oh, let's, oh, let's yeah. do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's work uh, yet to be done and collaboration between us that, you know, I think this is just the begin, beginning um, to see what kind of work that we can do together. So uh, let, let's do that. Uh, we'll stay in touch. And I thank you both very much uh, for this opportunity to be with you and to share um, our work and a few of the stories with, with your audience. And yes, please have me back. I'd love to come back on. Awesome. And I said, I want awesome. to make an official offer to you. I, I would love the partnership either with uh, the organization uh, FDFI in general, or you specifically with the abolished slavery national network. Uh, I would also like to report to you and to your ancestor through you that as of today, we have abolished slavery in four states. We have 12 states mm. that have legislation to abolish slavery scheduled for the next two years. So that'll be 12 that will do it in the next two years at least. And 14 others are organizing to do so as well. And we also have a joint resolution to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment with the 28th Amendment that will negate the exception clause of the 13th Amendment. All that is in play right now in this abolitionist movement. Uh, Brother Morris and Father Douglas. So thank you <laughs> that, so much. That's brother. great work and congratulations on that. I'm sure, you know, three, four, five years ago that would have seemed impossible to have yes. make as much progress as you've made so right. far. So congratulations. Yes. Any final comments or websites that you would like anybody to visit? We've already shared everything that we talked about on our website, just in case our listeners need to know. But anything you want to share in particular before you go? Yeah, I'll just say really quickly because um, you know I think it's important for all of us to understand that we stand on the shoulders and walk in the shoes of those that came before us and that history lives in each of us. It doesn't just live in me because I descend from two people that have notoriety, but history um, lives in all of us. And, and if we go back and we look at our ancestors, our family tree, we'll find people that sacrificed uh, their lives. Um, just for the freedoms that we do have or may have sacrificed their lives just so that some of us can even sit in a classroom and get an education or or to even have a conversation like this over the public airways. So history lives in all of us, but the future depends on how we carry that history forth. Thank you, brother. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to our guest here today, Kenneth B. Morris, Jr., the direct descendant of Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. Um, co-founder of the Frederick Douglass Family Initiatives, FDFI. And uh, you're going to hear more about and from uh, Brother Morris here at Abolition Today in the coming months, I'm sure. Uh, We're going to go ahead and get into our music break. 
which is also Frederick-oriented. Uh, I'll let uh, Brother Yusuf go ahead and tell you what that one is all about. It's an epic production. You've heard it before, maybe. But those who haven't, enjoy it. Those who have, enjoy it again. Yusuf? That's right. Yeah, in season one, uh, we closed out our Bridging the Gap segment over the course of 19 weeks with Ozzie Davis Reed's Frederick Douglass. And it was entitled A Warning to the American People from Frederick Douglass Clips. We had clips from uh, Damien Jr. Gong Marley. He had a song entitled uh, Slave Mill, American Gods, and Nancy Speech, the story of black people with the end scene remixed by In the Spirit of Blackness. And the music is mixed in with uh, Fela Kuti, uh, Sorrow, Tears, and Blood. So we're going to play that. And as Max said, enjoy it if it's the first, uh, first time, and enjoy it again if you've heard it before. Abolition. 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 With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. What men want and what they will, working for a dollar bill. Sad to see the old slave mill, grinding slow but grinding still. Walking home a youth gets killed, police free to shoot at will. Sad to see the old slave mill, grinding slow but grinding still. Nine to five, you know the drill. Weekends are a short-lived thrill. Sad to see the old slave mill. Grinding slow but grinding still. Cover on it over till it's filled. Take until they've had their fill. Sure hurts to see the old slave mill. <laughs> grinding slow but grinding still. Grinding a new pattern of oppression replacing the old slave system was growing up in the South. The plantation owners shorn of their source of power by emancipation, devised new methods of reducing the freedman to a state of peonage that would keep him bound hand and foot to the plantation. Terrorist societies, such as the Ku Klux Klan, swept down upon Negroes who dared to protest the violation of their rights. Any Negro community which sought to defend its civil liberties soon found its churches and schools a smoking shambles. Soon, as a result of this terror, the constitutional amendments adopted after the Civil War became little better than a mockery of freedom. When I met delegates at Negro conventions who had lived through the horrors of seeing their families massacred, their churches and schools burned to the ground, and their homes left in smoke and ruins, I realized the ridiculousness of the contention that my work was over. Constitutional amendments guaranteeing the Negro equality and fair play looked very well in print, I reminded my friends. But law on the statute book and law and the practice of the nation are two very different things and sometimes very opposite things. What were the 14th and 15th Amendments worth to the victims of the Klan terror? What did the ballot mean to men reduced to a state of peonage? At the South, I argued in speech after speech the Negro dependent upon his enemy for his daily bread cannot long vote or act contrary to the will of those to whom he must necessarily look for food and raiment which he must have. It is a grand thing to have rights secured by constitutional provisions and by legal enactments. 
but without a public opinion and the government to enforce them, they are a mockery. To be one half freeman and the other half slave, to be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. To those who called for a halt to agitation on the Negro question, I replied, we certainly hope that the time will come when the colored man in America shall cease to require the special efforts to guard these rights and advance their interests as a class. But that time has not yet come and is not even at the door. When the doors of nearly every workshop in the land are closed against the colored race and the highest callings open to them are of a menial character, while a colored gentleman is compelled to walk the streets of our large cities like New York unable to obtain admission to public hotels, while staterooms are refused in our steamboats and berths are refused in our sleeping cars on account of color, and the Negro is a byword and a hissing at every corner. The Negro is not abolished as a degraded caste, nor need his friends shut up shop and cease to make his advancement in the scale of civilized life a special work. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. Today. Once upon a time, a man got fucked. Now, how is that for a story? Because that's the story of black people in America. <laughs> you all don't know you black yet. You think you just people. Let me be the first to tell you that you are all black. The moment these Dutch motherfuckers set foot here and decided they white, and you get to be black, and that's the nice name they call you, let me paint a picture of what's waiting for you on the shore. You arrive in America, land of opportunity, milk and honey, and guess what? You all get to be slaves. Split up, sold off, and worked to death. The lucky ones get Sunday off to sleep, fuck, and make most slaves and all for what? For cotton, indigo, for a fucking purple shirt. The only good news is the tobacco your grandkids are gonna farm for free. It's gonna give a shitload of these white motherfuckers can. And I ain't even started yet. A hundred years later, you're fucked. A hundred years after that, fucked. A hundred years after you get free, you still getting fucked out of job and shot at by police. You see what I'm saying? This guy gets it. Angry. angry is good. Angry gets shit done. He was staring down the barrel of 300 years of 
subjugation, racist bullshit, and hostages. He is telling you there's one goddamn reason you shouldn't go up there right now and slit the throat of every last one of these Dutch motherfuckers and set fire to this ship. But now, <laughs> you are already dead, asshole. At least die a sacrifice for something worthwhile. Let the motherfucker burn. Let it all. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. To be one half freeman and the other half slave, to be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. We on the other side of that. Man, that is uh, the <laughs> final word by Ossie Davis reading Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and uh, it was just a whole bunch of stuff going on there. But he dropped the bomb on us, man. I know a lot of people wouldn't mind chiming in. So remember, if you have a question or a comment and you're on the line, Press the number one on your keypad so that we know you do have a question or comment and like to join the conversation. Um, in the meantime, until somebody does that, I we got a couple of pieces of uh, news and announcements to make. I, I was hoping Jamelia would join us this evening. Uh, I missed having her here. Uh, also, want to you know have her give us a, the opportunity to hear about AC3, which is California's bill to end slavery in the state of California. And we heard uh, Assemblywoman Dove speak on it last week in the recording. Uh, amazing, man. California's about to end slavery. And California isn't the only one. Oregon is about to do it, too. As a matter of fact, I'm looking right now for uh, my list on Oregon because I've got some actionable news here that we can do. Oh, right. It's right here. All right. So You got it. Okay. Uh, Oregon has submitted legislation in order to remove the exception clause from their state constitution, making them the 12th state to do so since the Abolish Slavery National Network uh, officially launched on August 28th of 2020. Man, somebody should be ringing bells when we when we say stuff like that. Right, right, right. Oh, you know what I mean? So anyway... <laughs> We're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna make sure we we add that to the board, man. We need to yeah, <laughs> right? do some clanging bell, and like, all of that. Like a gong, like boom, ripple effect time. You know what I mean? So anyway, right. they got a hearing on February the twenty fourth this Wednesday at eight a.m. Uh, you can go to the website. We'll, we'll put it on Abolition Today, where you can watch it in process. But what we need you to do is to mm-hmm. write a written testimony in order to assist the bill to get through. I personally did it in New Jersey. Remember, Yusuf, there was reading what I wrote there in New Jersey, here from South Carolina. So this was uh, on the table. SJM2, which urges Congress to amend 
the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution to omit the clause accepting criminal punishment, thereby ending racist legacy of slavery and nation's most important document. That's how they got it written. That's not necessarily how I would have written it, but that's (laughs) how they wrote it. SJR 10 proposes Mm -hmm. an amendment to Oregon Constitution to prohibit slavery and involuntary servitude in all circumstances. And SB 571 allows persons convicted of felonies to register to vote, update voter registration, and vote in elections while incarcerated. Now, that was the plan, right? That's that's huge, huge, y'all. So we need you to get on your letter-writing campaign. We're Surge at. I know we're forming a partnership, but if you can hear me, Surge, this is what we need you to do right here. Get on the letter-writing campaign. Uh, get on the website, uh, get the information you need. We'll put it on Abolition Today and uh, write in support of these efforts, okay? Uh, we are going to make the change that we want to be done. We are going to be the change we want to see in others. Um, we're creating the future that we want to see. There's no world that's ever existed where slavery wasn't legal in this country, and we're going to create that right. thing for the first time. All right. So you said passing the mic to you, and there is a hand Absolutely. up. Absolutely, and yeah, I was going to mention that that we have a hand up, and uh, the person uh, who called in with four one one zero. Welcome to Abolition Today with Max Parthis and Yusuf Hassan. Welcome to the show. You're on the air. Hey, what's up, what's up, Max? It's Cola. Oh, brother, Cola. Ah, Cola. Okay. Bro. Yeah, I was here from, was here from the beginning. I was here from the beginning, but I forgot to match the one. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know, man. I didn't know. I'm sorry, brother. Well, you got to enjoy that then, too, right? Yeah, yeah. I sat by that, that was powerful, brother. Uh, for those that don't know, Cold Rum is a spoken word artist, an OG in the community. Uh, you in Atlanta right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the Out of Atlanta, Georgia. Also an author, uh, actor, right? Uh, playwright. All of the all the things yeah, the writers well, do. Yeah, I act when they tell me, ask me to act. I'm really just a yeah writer and novelist. But I all act the when they tell me to act. You act when they tell you to act. I hear you, brother. You're in a play right now. I was seeing a bestie the other day with a big billboard over his head. Took a picture with him in it. Aren't you in oh. that? Yeah, no, I'm not in that one. I'm not in that one. I've been in my own. Oh, we're gonna have to have a talk with a What's up with that? <laughs> well, anyway, man. <laughs> Uh, Cole Rum is doing the what you'll be hearing with the Bridging the Gap, which you heard last week and what you'll hear this week and probably for the, about the next five to six weeks of Bridging the Gap. Uh, he, I asked him to record the speech by Frederick Douglass about the U.S. Constitution answering the question, is it or isn't it a pro-slavery document? And I couldn't find anyone who had ever read it aloud on audio or video anywhere. So this is likely the first time it's ever been put on audio and played on air. Uh, much props to you, Cole, for that. Thank you so much, brother. No, it wasn't no, it wasn't no thing, man. It wasn't no thing. I'm glad you asked me to do it for you. So it wasn't no thing. You know? hey, uh, so I was just go ahead. No, I, I'm interrupting no, I, you. I'm sorry. Oh no, I, I was just uh, just supporting you. Just supporting you. I did. I did. Did agree with you on the um Harriet Tubman on the dollar bill because when other poets asked me that I was like it was surreal. I said surreal. They're like, what you mean surreal? 
I said, look at all the companies she has. I said, all them people on the dollar bills are tyrants and slavers. Right. They cheap. Yeah, I said, they cheapen her by putting her on the dollar bill. I said, those people are killers and murderers and enslavers and tyrants, and you put her on the dollar bill, and then everybody, it's like you said, everybody look at the dollar, they thinking about grinding and manipulating and cutting people's throats to get that dollar. So I feel like it, it, I feel like it cheapened her. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if she were alive to see some of the evil done with her face on it. Uh, she, exactly. Wow. Yeah. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, imagine, yeah. imagine out there and where, where is it? We was talking about uh, Syria, is it Syria where uh-huh. they bombed and now it's got the open air uh, slaves, Libya, Libya. Libya. They bombed yeah. Libya, right? And then they ended up with this open air slave uh, auctions going on. They're selling black people to right out in the open to all over day. again to this day. You yeah. met some American yeah. over there with a pocket full of Harriet Tubman's buying people. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, uh. Exactly. No. And exactly. Harriet's standing there uh. over his shoulder looking at him buy her people <laughs> with, <laughs> with her picture. Exactly. Uh, uh, uh. Exactly. Oh, no, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate I appreciate you calling in, bro. We we are gonna stay with you for a few weeks, man. So the line is gonna be always okay. open for you to chime in anytime you want to. Uh, you are one of oh. our heroes up in here. Uh, you know, That's bringing right. their words back to life. Uh, the people okay, need to well, hear them. Do your thing. Hey, do any thing, brother? You, I was just calling any, in. Any other questions or comments you want? No, 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 no. That that was the main one when y'all was talking about that, and they was talking. I yeah. said, you know, I, I agree with Max since the first. <laughs> Man, if I agree with you so much, it's crazy. It's uh, yeah. I am through my through my novels. I have I'm having visions in the novels, right? And one of the visions I have in the novel is that I got a vision of black people got nickel and dime picks trying to um get to um the apple pie in America. But they got all the dead presidents um, looking or watching over them. So I got them as if they're on a slave chain gang. And all of these dead presidents looking over them. And I say they even got the newest member. And I have Harriet Tubman, I mean, Harriet Tubman with a shotgun looking over the black people slaving for nickels and dimes. And my partner was like, why why you put that in the novel? I said, because that's how absurd it looked when you're looking at the 20 and got her on it. You know, mm. I said that's how absurd and surreal it looked. You guys, Harriet Tubman on the twenty, you know. So it, yeah, it affected me just that much. I was like, man, that's the. I was everybody like, yeah, they were cheering. I said, why are y'all cheering for that? I said, I look at that like it's, it's they cheaping her, you know. So yes. So it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. But, but it is y'all gonna do y'all thing. I'm gonna keep listening, man. All right, all right. Peace, Cola. Definitely. All right, brother. Definitely. Thanks for the call, brother. As I was saying before, too, anything we talk about here on Abolition Today, you can find on Abolition Today at Facebook. So follow us at uh, Abolition Today at Facebook. Our news and music you can find at our YouTube page, which is uh, Abolition Today on YouTube. So just YouTube.com slash Abolition Today. And always remember to go to the Abolish Slavery National Network and sign up on the mailing list so that you're kept in the loop for actionable moments, like what I just mentioned regarding Oregon and the letter writing campaign. That's abolishslavery.us. Yusuf? 
You know, I'm I'm still sitting here just like, you know, just thinking about the conversation <laughs> that you had with uh, Kenneth Morris and just saying, wow, it's like the spirit of uh, Frederick Douglass was just in the room with us. Especially you know, the man carrying his bloodline right? in him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that music break was something else. And we ain't done. We got some more jewels about Frederick tonight for you to drop, you know. Uh, one dropped in my lap at the last minute, but I had always had it. You know, you'd be looking for something, and it's always right there in your face, and you didn't know it until right. the last minute. That was what happened to me today. And uh, I found this, this beautiful uh, track regarding Frederick Douglass. I'll, I'll talk about it when it's time to play it. What is it? 8 okay. 20 now. Uh- uh, let's go ahead and do a couple of news shots, and then we'll get into that music. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to do a did you know about Frederick Douglass that I kind of stole let's, from you. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, okay. So did you know uh, Frederick Douglass found himself at odds with many white abolitionists from 1869 until the day he died where they made amends hours before his death? Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass were neither friends nor allies. Uh, in fact, Douglas was the subject of constant coordinated racist attacks by the women's suffrage movement. The, an- the animosity stemmed from Frederick's decision to split with the women's suffrage movement in the late 1860s during the fight to give African-American men the right to vote through the 15th Amendment. Although he had been a strong advocate for equal rights and women's suffrages, suffrages uh, he uh, surmised that mixing the two would result in a failure to pass the amendment. So, yeah, it was very interesting to uh, learn that, you know, and, you know, yeah. so it's the 15th Amendment for the uh, the right to vote, but women didn't get it until the 8th was the 18th Amendment, right? Just thinking off the top of right. my head. I believe it was the 18th Amendment that gave women no, the, the right eight, to vote. 18, the 18th became the 21st, so 19th. Ninth, okay. I got you. Right, because it was originally illegal for them, and then they had to uh, repeal and replace. And that was prohibition that they repealed and replaced. Right. Prohibition. But, yeah, and, you know, when he finally made amends with Susan B. Anthony, that was the day he died, Frederick Douglass. Yesterday is the anniversary of it, right. 126 years ago. Um, they, they invited him to come to a woman's suffrage uh event and he came down and she walked him to the stage and he did his speech and uh, they hugged after that he went back to his house to make another speech somewhere else and get ready for that and between the time he came home and going to the next place he passed away right there in his house so that was the day he died when he made amends with Susan B. Anthony see the problem there was they had two different points of view Frederick was like you know at that point it really was a masochist society you know, uh, right. patriarchal society, and he understood right. that. That so he was like, okay, at least half my people are gonna get the chance to vote right now, and we can move forward from there. That's how he was looking at. It, you know, uh, even right. if it's just men, it's still half my people getting a chance to vote. We don't have no chance right now, no influence at all, no political power, and you can't right. have freedom without the right to vote. So on the other hand, the white women's suffrages was like, you know, the hell with that. <laughs> How are you going to leave us out the picture? Are you going to get it and not us? And then, you know, particularly black women is what they were saying. But really, it was them they were concerned with the most because they felt like they were being oppressed and they wanted more political power at the time. And their decision was we would rather that black men get no vote than white women be excluded. 
and that's how they ended up breaking away. You know, and and, and as 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 I'm hearing you discuss that, I'm thinking of the things that happen today. You know, when we start talking about the slavery abolitionist movement and how many other movements in the in in the abolition space or in the uh, social justice reform, how these these uh, different ideologies conflict with what the slavery abolitionist movement is all about, and many of those that have gone along those other paths don't even see that this is the root cause. You know, the exception clause of the Thirteenth Amendment is going to alleviate all of the other things. And, you know, so I can definitely equate that to what you were just explaining between, you know, Frederick wanting to go with the 15th Amendment, which made sense, you know, mm-hmm. to get to get some, increase that political uh, power, and then work for having it for everyone. Right, which is a logical thing, even though you may oppose the way it's got to be done, but it did, it would break through, and it did, it, bro- it opened the door. Uh, but the the opposition from the woman's suffrage was, you know, if I can't have it, nobody can have it. (laughs) And that kind of sucks, you know what I mean? But it is what it is, man. There's a few other pieces of news I want to mention on the program here before we get into this next music break. Um, And most of it has been discussed on uh, one of the other programs here at Abolition Today, which is live from the plantation. I really suggest that you listen to last Thursday's Live from the Plantation, extremely powerful witnesses, testimonies. Uh, Live from the Plantation is hosted by people on the inside. It's produced by people by the inside. It's developed by people on the inside. It's They make it about what they want it to be about. Um, and they're very mm-hmm. intelligent, and uh, they're abolitionists as well. Uh, and they had some discussions in regard to what was happening in the prisons and jails in Texas during this uh natural disaster that they experienced and the testimonies mm-hmm. are just outrageous what they are allowing people to go through so make sure you check out at abolitionstoday.org it's called live from the plantation i think it was episode 23 uh just the most recent one so there's that and, go ahead. yeah and just to put a caveat on that they also produce our show <laughs> you know they they wanted a show like this to go and they said you know Max put together a show, and <laughs> oh, you, you know, you thankfully, yes, 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 they uh, they produced this show, and I guess they're pleased with us. We're still on the air over a year later, you know. And of course, I know they are because they tell us all the time, yeah, you know. I think and you're referring to Jailhouse uh, Lawyers Speak, which is uh, yes. one of our primary sponsors. They pay, they keep the lights on here at Blog Talk Radio for us. Uh, yeah, and they, they they came to us a little bit over a year ago. Said Max, we want you to do what you be doing, <laughs> right? Uh, like you don't want me to change nothing. We don't want you to. Do we just want you to be Max. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna need some help, <laughs> and that's when I called you in, and uh, we came up with a plan of what we wanted to present. Because I had like many many years of radio broadcasting, particularly on abolition, already under my belt. So he, they knew what to expect. Uh, right. And they, it, so when they called me, I'm, I'm an open book. If you ask for Max, you know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to you know, get already. You know what you're going to get. It don't matter what you call me for. It could be at a birthday party. You're going to hear about the 13th Amendment. <laughs> People are like, damn, Max, can I get just a birthday party? 
I mean, isn't that how we met? You know, you, you came to town to do a spoken word event, and the first word you say to me is, hey, what you know about the 13th, 13th Amendment? 13th Amendment, yep, exactly, exactly. And it's just been on from that from that day forward. It's you know, been on and, you since know, that day forward. 11 years now, you know, and it's yeah. just been awesome. As a matter of fact, coming awesome. up March 4th so, will be the 11th anniversary of the March 4th for Freedom campaign, where we... Uh, organized all across America in unity, uh, very much like the uh, Occupy uh, did after us a few years later. But we organized mm-hmm. cities all across America at uh, detention facilities, at prisons, at courthouses, at jails, in protest of modern-day slavery. That was 11 years ago. And we did it on the anniversary of my great-aunt who raised me as my mother, uh, Grace Brown. God rest her soul. Her birthday is March 4th. Yes. She herself was raised by former slaves. So that's how close it is in our family. <laughs> so, yeah, man. And, you know, speaking of history, our next artist uh, got a long history with Brother Abiodun Oyewole of The Last Poets. We go back a couple decades, man, uh, The Last Poets. I'm kind of like an honorary last poet, and he's an honorary PD poet, <laughs> you know? That's right. Uh, that's right. But, as I was saying before, I was looking for these Frederick songs and I couldn't find none. And then suddenly I remembered me and my granddaughter, Kim. Her favorite song is In the Rain by Abby Odun Oyewole. And guess who it's about? Frederick Douglass. So this is dedicated to my granddaughter, Kim. I love you, baby. Hope you're listening. Uh, we're going to listen to Rain by Abby Odun Oyewole and Taylor Rice from the album Gratitude, which is available now on iTunes. You're listening to Abolition Today, and we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> Abolition, Abolition. Abolition. Step 
That's for my baby girl, Kim. If you're out there listening, that's for you, baby. Man, she used to be like, Pop-Pop, can I play the rain song again? She was about three years old, four years old. It was her favorite thing all day long in the car, in the house. Play the rain song. Play the rain song. <laughs> <laughs> that's tough, man. Yeah, tough. Every time I hear it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember well, the, day, the, the day it came out. Yeah, yeah, I remember too. Yeah, it was. I'm glad you came across it because it's like I've forgotten it because it's been what has it been about a year now since it came out? Maybe a little bit longer. You know, I lost my all my stuff on my computer when it crashed a couple years ago. So like everything prior to 2020, we're talking about 25 years of work was gone. We're still trying to get Mm. it all restored to this day. So among that was his whole album. I had a copy he had given me but you know again I didn't do a disaster in the flood and we lost all our physical stuff two floods right <laughs> yeah, two, two floods, floods right? you know man God it was like I put me on my job I'm trying to tell you y'all so anyway I didn't have any copies of it 
And when it hit me that I wanted that song and remembered, I was like, oh, I got to find it. So I called up Dune himself. First, I asked Tribe, right. and she searched it out on Spotify, but Spotify don't have any actual copies. So then I, I called Dune, and you know, I'm like, I'll get it from Dune himself. So then I remember, damn, I can't even call Dune because he's having Sunday brunch today. You know, he's been doing that for like 30 years with all the artists from across the country, across the world, right. come to his house. So I can't interrupt Sunday brunch. That's sacred. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> let me see if this is my emails. I searched emails, couldn't find it. And then I called Scotty. I'm like, Scotty, you have a copy? He's like, no, nah, I ain't got a copy. I went back to the old new abolitionist radio days, bro. And was going to snatch it off one of them. And then I <laughs> finally found it on iTunes in all its beautiful glory. <laughs> so the album is on iTunes, and I had picked it up. <laughs> yeah, that whole album, Gratitude. You know, go yeah. snatch that up because it's That'd a great album. The last. You know, I'd like to take a. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I would just like to take a moment to uh, just mention our sponsors and our partners because, you know, again, without them, there's no abolition today. So, of course, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the IMWE uh, Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sema Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolition Center, Prismatic Dreams, and Black Talk Radio Network. Definitely just like to take the time out to always uh, for their continued support or sponsorship of the program. Yeah, it takes a village. And those are all, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, some of them are incarcerated individuals who have organized and others are grassroots organizations. You know, um, these are not major sponsors. These are people that give a damn and they know that we're putting our lives on the line and getting the work done, even, you know, without all the limelight and stuff. Uh, so they support us wholeheartedly, and as you said earlier, they don't even tell us what we need to do. They know what they're getting. <laughs> you know, right. we're gonna end slavery. <laughs> That's what we're gonna do. That's it. <laughs> we're gonna educate. That's what we're gonna do. We, how that Thirteenth Amendment song go? Uh, let's get educated. Let's get educated. Right. The Thirteenth Amendment. Let's get educated. So, <laughs> yeah, let's recap a little bit on the evening Open up the lines If you're on the line, press 1 If you have a question or comment we got a few minutes to spare Before we get into our final segment for the evening um, If you anything you want to say Just press number 1 If you're listening and you want to call in It's 515-605-9814 That's 515-605-9814 And remember to press 1 uh, In the meantime, we can recap uh, Anything from tonight that stood out for you, brother? Just the night in itself, having, uh, again, someone carrying the bloodline of Frederick Douglass on the show with us. I mean, both of both of us are just big fans of Frederick Douglass, you know, students of his. And to, to have him here and see that he's carrying on his great-great-great-grandfather's legacy is just tremendous in itself. And to hear him tell about his journey to being where he is, where he you know, originally was sort of like running from it, you know, and that that was uh, a touching portion of what he was speaking about. Now, uh, you know, I thoroughly thank him for sharing that with us because you know, I know I feel like running away sometimes too, you know, mm-hmm. so I guess it's even, it's even more of a burden when you're carrying the bloodline and there's this, this tremendous expectation, you know, to do and, yeah, he's doing it. He's heavily involved. So, again, just tremendous thanks for him 
you know, taking time out of his schedule to be on the program with us. Yeah, that's one of the moments that stood out for me. Uh, you know, I had it touched my heart because you, you must realize that for people uh, who are descendants of those who have legacies like King and X and Frederick and Harriet and all of those, uh, there's almost an expectation that's there on them that they were born with, you know, and that has got to be some kind of a big burden because not every person is the same. I have six biological children. I've raised 10. I got 19 grandchildren. There ain't no more Max Parthas as I'm it. it you know what I mean? Like some right. a lot of my kids know about what I'm doing, but they couldn't possibly be me and you can't expect them to or my grandkids, but you can expect right. them to try to be great in their own right. You know, well, and I think yeah, that's as long as he's at. right. It's, I mean, as long as none of them turn out like uh, Thurgood Marshall, what was it, Junior or the third? <laughs> the third, third, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, don't don't do that. Don't do that. Don't shame the family name and go and become a board member for the, one of the largest prison companies in the freaking world, man. Don't do nothing like that. <laughs> right. You know, going from being. You know, a champion of the people, civil rights to being basically a, a slave owner. And, and I labor. think his yeah. yeah his position on there was community relations. So that says it all right there. You know, the only black man on the board of directors for one of these major for-profit prisons, and your community relations. <laughs> oh, okay. That's like when they send a black cop out yeah. to speak to us, huh? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, that's what Which it is, is man. <laughs> Smoothing it over. Well, <sighs> we uh, we covered all the bases tonight. The Thirteenth Amendment, the exception clause, is causing so many problems. And I look forward to the day that we have congressional hearings uh, where we get to testify. Yeah. And I don't, when I say we, I don't mean me and you. I mean all across this country, people who have experienced it, people who are involved in it, people who have enacted it, and architected right. the architects of it. All get to tell their stories about how the Eighth Amendment has affected this country since it, it, its application in 1865, because it, it, there was no grass growing between nobody's toes. The moment it went into play, convict leasing began. Even before it went into play, convict leasing right. was going on. So it was legal as soon as the Thirteenth Amendment happened, and it never stopped from then on. Chain gangs, and uh, you know, everybody's probably seen Judas and the Black Messiah by now, right? So of course. You know, that it also led we may up to have that to discuss right that there. next week. Yeah, we may have to discuss that next week as well. We might have to. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, so, we may have to because people they they catch on the fads, and if the proper narrative is not being put out there, then many misconceptions, you know, grow from that. And so maybe they need to hear like an abolitionist perspective. On Judas and the Black Messiah. Maybe we can do that. Just a thought. Just a thought. It's just a thought. I do know. I'll say this much, right? And this was a conversation I had with another brother of mine, Brother Breeze, um, mm-hmm. where we was talking about. I said, if I could yeah, make shout one out to change, Breeze. Hey, Breeze, send us a new track, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I could make one change in the movie, right? At the end, I would put the clip of uh, any reporter explaining about what happened with Ehrlichman and how he admitted that Nixon knew that he was not declaring war on drugs, he was declaring war on black people, and that he was only using the drugs as a facade, as a front, 
in order to right. break up their communities and arrest their leaders, continuing with J. Edgar Hoover had been doing. It was a direct response to the Black Liberation Movement, and that began the era that we now know as mass incarceration. That was the start of it right there, where it went from just chain ganging and convict leasing to now we're just catching you and throwing as many of you as we can into these things. And then it exploded with, of course, Reagan and further with Clinton and then finally into the Obama and Trump days. Right. All right, bro. Right. Well, and, uh, go ahead. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to just go ahead and close up, but it was uh, no. just one little uh, sort of caveat that I wanted to add. When you mentioned that the chain gangs and everything, convict leasing was going on before the passing of the 13th Amendment. You know, we really see that uh, when they switched over from the the uh, penitentiary style of the Pennsylvania system and they switched over to the Auburn system, and that's where it really began. And I want to say, I can't remember the year offhand, but somewhere around 1852, you know, so they already had, you know, several decades under their belt of already doing convict leasing in the North, you know, so most people only trace the history of convict leasing to the South, but it actually began several decades before then. So I just wanted to add that in there. Oh, absolutely. There are uh, convict leased uh, Africans, uh, former enslaved Africans, graveyards. In New York mm-hmm. uh, right. That they've uncovered Where convict leasing had Using convict leasing they worked uh, Black men, women and children to death Literally worked them to death And then buried them in unmarked graveyards And built like Central Park Right on top of a former black community <laughs> you know? Absolutely Yeah. University oh, of uh, Virginia on. on top of Fish Hill We got Jamelia who called in yeah, We can bring her in hand up There we go We got the last few minutes yeah. Sure Go ahead Hey Jamelia Hey, good evening, gentlemen. My apologies for being tardy. I've been on the line with Sam. He, yeah, we knew you were well, putting out a fire. Well, yeah, you put out a fire. <laughs> yes, oh, thank yes. you. Thank it's you. Tell the brother we tonight. love him, and we can't wait to have him on again. You know what? That's him calling right now. Do you mind if I put you on hold? Can I bring him in? Uh, we've only got about three minutes left, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. He, he he just hung up, so he may not. He may ha- he may have to try to call back in, but. If he does, I'll bring him in before uh, we end. But thank you again for having me this evening. Um, I apologize again that I've missed some of the conversation. Um, but I'm here. I made it. Well, can you just give us a quick thing on uh, ACA3? Just if you can squeeze it into like two and a half minutes. Yeah. So, you know, I'm excited to announce that uh, California, um, as some of you may know, you know, my husband wrote the proposal that was uh, introduced to Assembly Member, California State Assembly Member Sydney Kamlager Dove. Um, she agreed to author the bill. She introduced it December 18th of last year. Um, it is a resolution to propose to the people of the state of California an amendment to our Constitution uh, amending Section 6 of Article 1 um, relating to involuntary servitude, where we will be striking the language from our Constitution. So, uh, it is a two-year, two-year battle, um, but hopefully, come November 2022, the lovely citizens of the state of California will be able to go to the ballot box and vote um, that we are a state that will not tolerate slavery in any form or fashion, um, and we will remove the voluntary servitude from our state constitution. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing here in California. We're excited about it. Awesome. Is there anywhere that they can go for further information, a website, uh, 
Facebook page, social media, anything? So right now um, we are in the process of building our website. It should be up in the next few days. But right now, if people would like to reach out to me, they can reach me at ACA3COMS. That's ACA3COMMS at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram at ACA3, the California Abolition Act, um, on Instagram. And I will be, uh, you know, be sending out some information um, and showing our media, our social media presence within the next week. Awesome. Right. You know to keep us posted with that, of course. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. Thanks I, I want to give a shout-out to all, all the states that we've been, that have been working, um, you know, and Max and you for going out and wrangling everybody in. I know that we <laughs> recently were able to bring Louisiana into the fold. So, you know, shout-out to everybody around the country who, who's doing this very necessary and needed work. Amen to that. And we added four awesome. more states just in the past two days. So. Thank you for calling in. Uh, we got to get into our last segment because we've only got a limited amount of time. Uh, and I'll catch you uh, after the program. And uh, and thank you for making today's interview possible, Jamelia. Right. We love you, oh, you're welcome, Max. Right. Thank you. Peace. Love you all, too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We're getting into our final segment here, which is the Constitution pro or anti-slavery. Frederick Douglass, 1860, read by Cola Rump. And it's going to be followed by It's Too Late to Apologize, a declaration from (laughs) Soamo Publishing. Y'all are going to love this. Until next week, think of Abolition Today. Peace. Peace. Abolition Abolition. Today. These debates were purposely kept out of view in order that the people should adopt not the secret motives or unexpressed intentions of anybody, but the simple text of the paper itself. Those baits form no part of the original agreement. I repeat, the paper itself, and only the paper itself, with its own plainly written purposes, is the Constitution. It must stand or fall, flourish or fade, on its own individual and self-declared character and objects. Again, where would be the advantage of a written Constitution if, instead of seeking its meaning in its words, we had to seek them in the secret intentions of individuals who may have had something to do with writing the paper? What will the people of America a hundred years hence care about the intentions of scriveners who wrote the Constitution? These men are already gone from us, and in the course of nature were expected to go from us. They were for a generation, but the Constitution is for ages. Whatever we may owe to them, we certainly owe it to ourselves and to mankind and to God to maintain the truth of our own language and to allow no villainy, not even the villainy of holding men as slaves, which Wesley says is the sum of all villainies, to shelter itself under a fair-seeming and virtuous language. We owe it to ourselves to compel the devil to wear its own garments and to make wicked laws speak out their wicked intentions. Common sense and common justice and sound rules for interpretation all drives us to the words of the law for the meaning of the law. The practice of the government is dwelt upon with much fervor and eloquence as conclusive as to the slaveholding character of the Constitution. This is really the strong point and the only strong point made in speech in the city hall. But good as his argument is, it is not conclusive. A wise man has said that few people have been found better than their laws, but many have been found worse. 
to the last rule, America is no exception. Her laws are one thing, her practice is another thing. We read that the Jews made void the law by their tradition, that Moses permitted men to put away their wives because of the hardness of their hearts, but that this was not so at the beginning. While good laws will always be found, while good practice prevails, the reverse does not always hold true. Far from it. The very opposite is often the case. What then? Shall we condemn the righteous law because wicked men twist it to the support of wickedness? Is that the way to deal with good and evil? Shall we blot out all the distinction between them and hand over to slavery all that slavery may claim on the score of long practice, such as the course commanded to us in the City Hall speech? After all, the fact that men go out of the Constitution to prove it pro-slavery, whether that going out is to practice of the government or the secret intentions of writers of the paper, the fact that they go out is very significant. It is a powerful argument on my side. It is an admission that the thing for which they are looking is not to be found where only it ought to be found, and that is the Constitution itself. If it is not there, it is nothing to the purpose, be it wheresoever else it may be. But I shall have no more to say at this point hereafter. The very eloquent lecturer at the city hall doubtless felt some embarrassment from the fact that he had literally to give the Constitution a pro-slavery interpretation, because upon its face, it of itself conveys no such meaning, but a very opposite meaning. He thus sums up what he calls the slaveholding provisions of the Constitution. I quote, his own words. Article 1, Section 9 provides for the continuance of African slave trade for 20 years after the adoption of the Constitution. Article 4, Section 9 provides the recovery from the other states of fugitive slaves. Article 1, Section 2 gives the slave states a representation of the three-fifths of all the slave population. And Article 1, Section 8 requires the president to use the military, naval, ordinance, and militia resources of the entire country for the suppression of slave insurrection in the same manner as he would employ them to repeal invasion. Now, any man reading this statement or hearing it made with such a show of exactness would unquestionably suppose that he, speaker or writer, had given the plain written text of the Constitution itself. I can hardly believe that they intended to make any such impression. It would be a scandalous imputation to say he did. And yet, what are we to make of it? How can we regard it? How can he be screened for the charge of having perpetuated a deliberate and point-blank misrepresentation? That individual has seen fit to place himself before the public as my opponent, and yet I would gladly find some excuse for him. I do not wish to think as badly of him as to trick up this who would naturally lead me to think. Why did he not read the Constitution? Why did he read that which was not the Constitution? He pretended to be giving chapter and verse, section and clause, paragraph and provision. The words of the Constitution were before him. Why did he not give you the plain words of the Constitution? Oh, sir, I feel that the gentleman knows too well why he did not. It so happens that no such words as African slave trade, no such words as slave insurrections are anywhere used in that instrument. These are the words of that orator and not the words of the Constitution of the United States.